Good morning. So, two quick stories. Did you hear about the guy who was called into his doctor's office? The doctor sat him down and said, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Which do you want first? Give me the good news first. Okay, said the doctor. Your tests are back and you have three days to live. That's not, that's the good news, the guy exclaimed. For heaven's sakes, what's the bad news? My receptionist has been trying to get a hold of you for two days. Here's another one. A guy falls out of an airplane at a thousand feet in the air. The good news is he had it on a parachute. The bad news is the parachute didn't open. The good news is there's a huge haystack on the ground right where he's heading to land. The bad news is there's a pitchfork lying in the middle of the haystack, tines up. (laughs) The good news is he missed the haystack. (laughs) So, life is full of good news and bad news. The gospel is the good news. It's the good news of the fact that Jesus took care of our sins and that we now have eternal life by simply placing our faith in his finished good work on the cross. And that good news gets better. He validated his claim to be able to forgive us of our sins and take us to heaven by the fact of the resurrection. Had he not rose again, there'd be no real good news. There is further good news. Once we've accepted Christ and received his forgiveness for our sins, Our lives are changed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who lives within us. When that change comes, our behavior is changed from the inside out. Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, to describe proper behavior in the church. That's what we've been looking at in these three chapters of Timothy in uh, the last couple of weeks on the leadership of the church. I want to just finish chapter Three today, so it, I guess it'll be up here. But First Timothy, chapter three, verse fourteen says, "These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. For without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness." God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. May God bless his word. Can you pray with me just for a moment? God, we ask that you would take your word and open it up to us, that you would just uh, expound it to our hearts so that we might take it and, as it were, run with it, obey it, live with it, rejoice in it. So, Lord, um, speak to us this morning from your word. Thank you for it. We bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing to see, I've got three things I want you to see. I hope it won't take too long. That's, an, <laughs> that's been a struggle here. but <laughs> The first thing is the gospel denotes certain behavior. Um, 
In verse 14, Paul has written the letter to Timothy to instruct him on how the church ought to order itself. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. In other words, he's writing to tell them how to set the church up and for the church to uh, behave properly. Paul had left Timothy to pastor the church in Ephesus, and he hoped to rejoin him soon. In the meantime, he'd left him with some, these instructions, the letter on church order and conduct. Now, in verse 15, he pretty much gets into it in one sense. He, he gives them the reason for the entire letter, actually. Verse 15, Paul has told Timothy and the reader why he wrote the book, its purpose, and thereby what would be accomplished as a result. The clearly stated purpose of the book is in these instructions. He says, but I am delayed, I, if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. So he's giving instruction to Timothy so that he can run the church and how the church should um, behave itself. Uh, he's the pastor of the Ephesian congregation. We've talked about that. He's looking for a man to follow him up. He's looking for elders and leaders in the church. Um, he calls it the house of God or the household in some of your translations. What is a house? What is a household of, of people? It's a place where we interact as a family, where we love one another, where we um, bear one another's burdens, where we try to understand one another and work together towards a common goal. That's what he's talking about here. It's a home. The church is supposed to be a home, a spiritual home. And uh, I think at times we in the West think a church is someplace we choose so that we can do what we want to do. In reality, the church is something that God has chosen for us so that he can mature us and grow us. That's our home. Just like in our own home. You, you didn't really have a ch choice as to who your parents were, did you? So be careful when you make choices about churches. God has placed you here for a reason. He's placed, he started the church for a reason. And he calls it, it's something interesting. I found this interesting when I was studying. He says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Uh, William Barclay noted this years ago about this in his commentary. He said, in Ephesus, to which these letters were written, the word pillar would have a special significance. The greatest glory of Ephesus was the temple of Diana, or Artemis. You remember in Acts, uh, great is the temple, they were shouting, putting Paul down. Great is the temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. One of its features was its pillars. It contained 127 pillars. Every one of them the gift of a king. All were made of marble, and some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. The people of Ephesus knew well how beautiful a thing a pillar could be. It may well be that the idea of the word pillar here is not so much for support. That is contained in a buttress as a display. Often the statue of a famous man set on top of the pillar that it may stand out above all the ordinary things and, and so be clearly seen even from a distance. So if you can imagine these the Temple of Diana was made up of 127 pillars given by kings, of which on the top of those pillars were, was probably a, a, a replica of the king himself. But they weren't supportive. 
But when Paul says that you're to be a, the, or the church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth, he's talking about that. He's, making, he's, he's shooting at that and saying these pillars are not the real truth. The real truth is found in the word of God and in the church of God. Barclay goes on to say here, the idea here is that the church's duty is to hold up the truth in such a way that all men may see it. In other words, the church is to be like those pillars in the, the temple of Diana. They're on display. And the church is what holds up the truth. Now, I think we are having, um, in America, we are sort of having a, a problem believing that we have the truth. Because there's a lot of stuff that comes at us as Christians saying, oh, the Bible's not true, I don't believe that, you have your own truth, everything's relative, whatever. But we do have the truth. And we are to stand on that truth. We're to live our lives according to that truth. We're to build our churches around that truth. We find that truth in the Word of God. If you're going to uh, live according to anything else, you're not going to live according to God's truth. So we have to always come back to this. And as you look for a pastor, I'm, I've probably said this before, but please find a man who preaches the word of God. This is the foundation. Even though our society is sort of going completely away from it, I think there's going to be a reckoning in our society where we're going to finally have to come back to the truth because what we're doing now is nothing even remotely close to truth and consequently there's going to be uh, a falling uh, 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 just philosophically if you if you don't live according to the truth then eventually you'll fall in the lie I think we're agreed on that. But you have to follow after truth. The Bible must be taught to know ultimate truth. Paul is not saying that the church itself is the truth. God is the source of all truth. And Jesus is truth personified. Years ago in my Bible school, we studied that verse in John chapter 14, verse 6. And I didn't ask her to put it up. This is, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said, I am the person and embodiment of truth. If you don't study Jesus, you'll never know the truth. Truth is personified in him. Paul, what Paul is saying is that the church is the repository of truth. Truth should be what the church is all about. The church is to be a place where the truth is found and displayed through people's lives. Paul is simply affirming the crucial role of the universal church as a support and bulwark, not the source of God's truth. This should make the church totally different from the culture around her. Our culture, as I've said, is a culture, is no longer a culture of truth. It's a culture of shades of truth and consequently lies. I've, for whatever reason, this last couple of weeks, I've just thought about all the lies we're being told through our media, through our TV programs, through our movies. It's incredible what's being thrown at us. How do you sift through all that stuff? How do you figure out what truth is? 
You have to go back to this. If you're not a student of the word, you'll be captured in the lies. It's like a snare. And eventually you'll get snapped into it, into the lies of our culture. The church should shine in the light of the truth. In stark contrast to the darkness of the surrounding culture. And she does this by her, dis- her displayed behavior. The church should be a picture of Jesus. How did Jesus behave in, a, in an untruthful culture of his day? He still behaved with grace and mercy and kindness and gentleness. He was straight with people. Think about the way he's, he spoke to the Pharisees. But he didn't do it out of hate. He did it out of love because he wanted to bring them back to walk in truth. I think this is why Paul is instructing Timothy about the conduct of the people in the house of God. Remember, this is a church with a missional mindset. And what I mean by that is the church is formed in order to reach the community. It's not formed for us to enjoy ourselves continually. It's formed for us to be reaching out and bringing the community in and blessing the community and growing the community in truth. Paul wants the church to be a light to the world around her and to be missional in her approach to the surrounding society. So the behavior of her members is critical. They display this truth that has transformed their lives to those outside who watch. Their behavior is always on display to a watching and unbelieving world. I've, you've probably had this happen, but I've, people, I've had people say, you're a Christian and you're doing that? I, I own rental property. I've had to evict people. I've had them get in my face and go, you're a Christian? Yes. <laughs> our, our culture slams us at times. Years ago, a man named William Hendricks wrote a book on the work ethics in America, and he he found this. He said, the Princeton Religion Research Center has measured the impact of religion on day-to-day work, comparing the churched with the unchurched in a wide range of behaviors like pilfering supplies, which is stealing, overstating qualifications on resumes, lying, calling in sick when not sick, that's lying and stealing, and overstating tax deductions, lying, stealing, and cheating. The sinner finds little difference in the ethical views and behavior of the churched and the unchurched. What differences there are are not significant or are of marginal significance. That's, That's horrific, really, if you think about it. We should be ethical to the point of ridiculousness, almost. But as a national church we're struggling with that when we do not operate in truth then we become dysfunctional as we try to deal with our sin in our own strength and wisdom it's futile when we should be submitting to the truth the gospel will always change one's behavior for the better as they as you and i begin to operate within the truth of how the world works and how one's life works as i went through this, I kept thinking, I didn't put anything in this, but Proverbs is the book of wisdom. And it's, it was true 2,000 years ago when it was written, and it's true today. 
If you'll read through the book of Proverbs on a regular basis, I, re I try to read one proverb a day. 31 Proverbs, 31 days of the month. It will change your life because you'll begin to see how people live in unwise ways as opposed to wise ways. It only makes sense that the creator of life would know how life ought to work. And he gave us an owner's manual, the Bible. When you buy a car, you get an owner's manual. If you have any sense, you'll spend a few, few minutes reading it. Find out the basics of how the car really works and the unique features. You do that with a new TV or a dishwasher. This last week, I got a new refrigerator. The owner's manual is that thick. It's on the floor in my garage right now. <laughs> I haven't read it. But you need to read things like that so that you don't make a, a huge mistake. The same is true of our, of our lives. We need to read the owner's manual. And spend time in it. In his book, I Surrender, Patrick Morley writes that the church's integrity problem is in, its, is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives, but not subtract sin. It's a change of belief without a change of behavior. He goes on to say, it is revival without reformation, without repentance. When we Say that we're a Christian, then we open up the owner's manual, we find out how we're to behave, and then we're to do that. And we can only do it as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So when we mess up, the best thing we can do is confess our sins, for he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Get us back on track so that we can live in the church as we should, but also in the community as we should. And we have to do that by being filled with the Holy Spirit. We have that indwelling Christ in us. So what is truth? Paul describes some of what truth is in the next verse, verse 16. It's a loaded verse. Verse 16 says this. I want to read it again. He says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. He gives six pugnant statements there about the gospel and about what is really true. Paul has been discussing proper godly conduct in the church and behavior, which is every way consistent with the truth, rather than contrary to sound doctrine. Do you guys know Ray Steadman? Are you familiar with a man named Ray Steadman? Um, he was the pastor of Palo Alto, uh, of a church in Palo Alto, California. And Chuck Swindoll, do you know who Chuck Swindoll is? Okay, Chuck Swindoll was his protege. Ray Steadman happened to be from Montana. <laughs> and uh, he's dead now, but he wrote some excellent books. I would highly recommend anything you can find by Ray Steadman. He was a tremendous exegete of the scripture. That is, a, he, he just got a hold of it in the way a lot of people don't. He said this, Ray Sedman sums up this verse and what it has to tell us like this. If one verse, in one verse, the apostle goes on to give us the very heart of that truth, the central fact around which everything else is built, the heart of the truth around 
of which everything else in life is built, right here in this one verse. This verse contains the key truth of the universe. That's a pretty heavy statement. He goes on to say, nothing is more important than this. It is the ultimate foundation of knowledge and wisdom expressed in this ancient hymn from the early church. That's a pretty heavy statement. We ought to pay attention to it. Paul says the mystery of godliness is great. The mystery is that which has been hidden from man's view until the presentation of of Christ on the Savior. We all like to watch mysteries on the TV or read mystery books. But the greatest mystery of all is is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. What do we know of that? How deeply have we we studied it and, and dug out the nuggets of it, the beauty of it? The mystery has now been revealed. The mystery is now known in that man can know can now live a godly life by the power of the indwelling Savior within him. Again, Ray Stedman says this. He says, The word mystery is used in the New Testament of an insight into reality that is hidden from secular wisdom. Now catch this, okay? The secular mind does not understand this mystery. It is something only revelation makes clear. So it will never be a part of man's compendium of knowledge. You will not find it elucidated in any encyclopedia of human discovery. It is not to be found in our great universities by and large, except as it is introduced by the church. We're the pillar and the keeper of truth and knowledge. He He finishes this, he says, it is a mystery, a secret about life that is hidden from the secular mind and made known only to believing hearts. We have something that is so wonderful and so awesome to give to the rest of the world. The world does not want it as such. But we're to be the dispensers of that knowledge, of that truth, of the wonder of what God has done. God has come and redeemed man and has given him his spirit to dwell within him. God lives in man. Now Paul fills in some of the other content of this great mystery of the quote from a hymn of that time, which speaks to the basic doctrinal truths of the Christian faith. Let me just run through these real quick. There's six of them. Appeared in the flesh. He says he appeared in the flesh. This refers to the incarnation of Christ. God became a man in the form of Jesus Christ. This had been a mystery. The Jews were waiting for him to come. They were hoping for the Messiah. And then when he came, they didn't even see it because they they didn't believe God's word. They believed tradition more than God's word. God loved man so much and recognized that man could do nothing about his sinful and lost state unless he did something so radical as to give man a, a way back to his original state of fellowship with God and hope for a sinless existence for all eternity so god became man so as to redeem him from his sin the ancients knew god was going to do something but they never saw this they never grasp it jesus was right there in their midst god in the flesh i think if i had been alive then i might not have grasped grasped it have you ever have y'all watched the chosen i'm in my third time watching the first season, I'm doing it with the young man that's 
from Germany. And he's astounded by it. So it never had hit him in the face that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Secondly, he was vindicated in the Spirit. This refers to God's demonstration of his righteousness and power through the miracles that God did. And the ultimate miracle, the resurrection, the ongoing presence of the Spirit in the world to bring conviction of sin is a sign of God's vindication in the Spirit. The fact that Jesus lived as a man never sinned is vindication of the Spirit. It's because the, the Spirit that we now live without sin I'm not saying we can be perfect, so we still mess up. But we know what's right when we have the Spirit of God living within us. The third thing, he was seen by angels. Certainly angels watched all that Christ did throughout his ministry on earth, even to the crucifixion and his resurrection. They were at his birth. They were at his temptation in the wilderness. They attended his prayers and watched as he drove out demonic angels. They ministered to him in the garden, and they stood at his tomb. This also refers to the heavenly exaltation before all the host of heaven as he sat down at the right hand of the Father and received that well-done son from God himself. You know, um, I don't know if y'all are aware, but this week is there's going to be a celebration of pride here in our community. And that's demonic. Just tell you right off, you may not agree with me, but it's demonic. And we should be praying that good angels will come down and interrupt what the demonic are trying to, to do. I've been thinking about this all weekend long. You know, we have the power because we can go to God the Father through Christ the Son to ask Him to stop those lies from being perpetuated in our community. I'm praying for a lot of rain this week, I'll just tell you. It would disrupt everything they're doing, and it would be good for all of us. What's that? Yeah, amen. Symbolically, wash them clean. Maybe we'll do that at the end of service. We, you can pray with me about that. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That's what I'd like to see happen this week. That's what I'd like to see happen every week, by the way. But Hebrews 1, verse 6 says, But when he... Again, brings the firstborn in the world. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. He was seen by angels. Fourth, he was preached among the nations. Paul is referring here to the fact that the gospel was going out through all the nations. and was being preached everywhere. And men from all nationalities of the day were coming to know Christ as a result of obedience to the Great Commission. And you know, I don't know if you realize it, but right now the gospel is spreading like gangbusters in the rest of the world. America is an exception. Most of Western Europe is an exception. But it's, it's spreading much quicker than the birth rate in the rest of the world and much quicker than Islam and some of the other religions. We just don't hear about it. Praise God. He's working. He had never stopped. We just don't see it here. Fifth, he was 
believed on in the world, this refers to the progress of God's redemptive plan through his preordained means. God has a plan that is unlike a plan for man that, so that all might believe and come into fellowship with him. God wants all men everywhere to repent and come to know him. That's his love, his heart. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness. I love that little phrase. For the message of the cross is foolishness. But, <clears throat> I lost my place. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Man, that, I don't know if that didn't make you get up and say, yes, I forget about passages like that sometimes, you know. God's in control. And then last, he was taken up into glory. This refers to the ascension. Jesus went into heaven in bodily form, is now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Acts 1.9 says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, all, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken, taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. He's coming back. He came once, he's coming again. You know why I know that? Because he, he was raised from the dead. If he wasn't raised from the dead, if there was no resurrection, then we have nothing to base any of this really on. He's just another philosopher. He's just another preacher out there trying to win some to his call. The key to the whole thing, the fact that all this hangs on, is whether he really validated it or not by being raised from the dead. And so the last thing to see here is the gospel's definitive basis, which is the resurrection. Everything hangs on the resurrection. Again, Paul does not definitely refer to the resurrection in verse 16, except to mention it by way of the fact that Christ was vindicated in the Spirit, referring to the miracles he did, the greatest of which was the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, there would be no gospel. Christianity would have gone the way of all other world's re world religions, inconsistent and logically hard to believe. I, I worked amongst Mormons for eight years. If you've ever read any of their scripture, it's a big comic book. And I don't mean that harshly. 
It doesn't make any sense. You, do, you can do that with Hinduism. You can do that with uh, Buddhism. Buddhism actually prides itself on being sort of inconceivable. <laughs> you know, one hand clapping, you've heard that. <laughs> but Christ, he was raised from the dead. Each book of the New Testament had something to say of the resurrection. The disciples were so excited by the resurrected Lord that it completely transformed their lives. And all but one died a martyr's death. It is one thing to die for something you believe in, but it is quite another to die for something that you know to be fact and have witnessed. There's a number of outside texts written by others in the same time period who attest to the resurrection. We, uh, secularists would have you believe that there was no other historical reference to the resurrection. I beg to differ. There was other writings of it. There are those who knew the original disciples and heard their confessions about the resurrection and wrote about it, Polycarp being one. This just further validates that which was originally told by the disciples as eyewitnesses. The resurrection is key to all. If there is no resurrection, there, then there is no forgiveness of sins. There are no real miracles. The Bible is really not true Jesus is not really God in the flesh who lived, worked, hungered, thirsted, hurt, and knew all human emotions. It is all a fairy tale that was made up to appease man in his dire need of relief and understanding of the tragedy of life without God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives the best explanation of the gospel, I think, in regards to the resurrection in the whole New Testament. Verse 12 says this, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most pitiful. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, that man being Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all died, <clears throat> even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. The resurrection is the key to the gospel. It's, 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 it, without that, there's nothing else. We should be preaching and teaching and, and expounding and sharing about the resurrection. That's our hope, that we will be resurrected with him as well. The world doesn't have that. No other religion has that. You can go to the tombs of all the founders of all the great religions of the world, but you can only go to an empty tomb of Jesus. 
Paul states, if he did not rise, then we really have nothing and we are most pitied by men for we are fools. But he did rise. <laughs> as many as 500 saw the resurrected Christ at one time. He was not hidden. It wasn't a make-believe miracle. All the disciples experienced firsthand interaction with him after his resurrection. And listen, <laughs> the church has been celebrating his resurrection every Sunday for about 2,100 years. I know there's groups of folks out there, I've argued with them, talked with them, they're friends of mine who say we've well, got to worship on Saturday. And I don't want to go way into that. Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath. But Sunday's the day of resurrection, and that's the difference of everything. We worship on Sunday because we celebrate him being raised from the dead. Hope changes people, especially hope in the resurrected living Lord who now indwells a believer. Are you a believer today? I believe everybody here is, but I don't know everybody. So I have to ask, are you, are you a believer today? Do you, do you have that hope that can transform you from the inside out? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior from sin? He's calling on you today to make sure you have that right relationship with him if you don't know him today. He's waiting for you to respond to the truth today. Will you do that? I love this last story I want to share with you. Do you remember Leonard Brezhnev? Do you, does that ring a bell? Leonard Brezhnev was the dictator, the primary guy in Russia for about 12 or 15 years. As Vice President George Bush represented the U.S. at the funeral of former Soviet leader Leonard Brezhnev, Bush was deeply moved by a silent protest carried out by Brezhnev's widow. She stood motionless by the coffin until the seconds before it was closed. Then just as the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife performed an act of great courage and hope, a gesture that must surely rank as one of the most profound acts of, e of civil disobedience ever committed. She reached down and made the cross, the sign of the cross, on her husband's chest. There in the citadel of secular atheistic power, the wife of the man who had run it all hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life and that that life has been represented by Jesus who died on the cross and that that same Jesus might have mercy on her husband. Will you have that courage today and step forward to receive Christ? free gift of salvation. I know that's not normal for you guys. You can just come and talk to me after service if you don't know Jesus. I just want to be sure. So I'm opening that up for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we pray right now, we pray to the resurrected Lord who sits in the flesh next to the Father of all the universe, sits at the right hand of the Father. Lord, I, I thank you that you hear our prayer. I ask that if there's anybody here who doesn't know yours, questioning about their relationship with you, that they would get that straight today and walk in the fullness of the Spirit. They might enjoy uh, your presence in their life. 
and that you might glorify yourself through them. So Lord, I ask that you would do that this morning. And God, we do pray about this pride thing that's going on this week. And we ask, Lord, that you would that you would just send your angels to stop all this evil from being perpetrated on our community. Pray that you would send rain in abundance. I pray that you would send out truth in abundance. And I pray, Lord, that this wickedness would come to an end. Have mercy on us. Now, give us a great day. Bless us as we go our separate ways. Thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.